You see, I follow a guy named Jesus who on his first sermon in the synagogue in Nazareth stood up. He read from Isaiah. My passage this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah. His sermon was one sentence long. Today the scripture is fulfilled in your midst. And how did that congregation respond? They wanted to throw him off a mountain. It's bound to go better for me today, right? Let me talk about where we've been. So our burning question series comes from your questions. And it was an opportunity, as we imagined it, for a deeper connection. Uh, to have an authentic practice between us, to have you know a bit more about me and my patterns and faithfulness, and to hear from you what some of your questions and struggles were. Last week we talked about evil, death, dying, suffering, heaven, and all of those powerful themes. That sermon's available online if you'd like to check it out. And this week we're going to talk about Scripture. And your questions reflect a seeker's heart and are deep and beautiful. And my hope is, is that I weave these questions together this morning We get a fuller picture of who God is in God's Word. But first, friends, let's pray. Holy God, we give you thanks for this morning and for the gift of worship, for the opportunity to be your people gathered. We ask that your Spirit move among us in such a way that it would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts, that we might be able to say that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, that they were acceptable in your sight. O Lord, who is our strength and the source of all salvation, amen. So let's start with the Word of God this morning, shall we? A reading from the prophet Isaiah. This is chapter 55. I'm going to read the first three verses and then four from the middle. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good. And your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Who as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without first watering the earth, making it bud, making it flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it out. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I love the beauty and the imagery of this story and the power of truth therein. This sense that God's word goes out like rain and like snow and waters the earth, waters us as the people of God, that we might have a seed to sow in others and we might be fed from a living bread that gives us strength. I love that the passage has a heart for the broken and disenfranchised, for the hungry poor. Come you who have no money, buy and eat your fill. Come you who are thirsty and I will give you drink. It's a beautiful passage about the idea that God's Word's going to be spoken out, poured out upon us in such a way that we are a part of giving it life and meaning and substance, so much so that the world around us begins to sing and clap its hands. I want to say a word about my experience with the Bible. 
I uh, grew up the son of a Methodist minister, as you know, uh, and uh, in college was very involved in my campus ministry. Through disciple Bible study and other things, it meant that I've read the Bible from cover to cover four different times in my life. That's not intended to brag. It's not even that significant accomplishment in the grand scheme of things. It just means I'm a bit of a Bible addict. First couple of times I read the Bible cover to cover, it came from a place of, of deep passion and a sense of this is God's one true word and I need to internalize it. I have to know it because it is the fullness of truth. The second two times didn't lack that edge or that kernel, but they came from a place in me of a bit more deconstructed faith, a bit more nuanced experience of longing to know what God wanted to say to me now. Not because God was done talking as all of the scripture was written down some 2,000 years ago and it was somehow my job to figure out what it meant for me today, but how is God using scripture to speak to me now at 45 in 2022? And the image that I've come up with for Andy's experience of the Bible is of dance. Now, I'm not a dancer. Some of you know I have a background in musical theater. I am at best a double threat. I can sing and I can act. Uh, choreographers do their best to stick me in the back corner out of the way and just have me try and sway to the beat. Uh, occasionally, if they like a challenge, there'll be a waltz of some kind. I am not a dancer, but I dance with Scripture. There are times where it clearly takes the lead. There are times where I struggle and push back. There are times where I feel like I'm hearing a different beat. There are times when I trip over my own feet and fall down. Scripture becomes a partner to me, and together what we are creating, the Bible and I, we are creating as the body of Christ, becomes a dance that reflects the work and will of God in the present. I said my first Sunday here, and it continues to be true, my goal in ministry for the last 22 plus years has been to make the Bible real and relevant for the people of God. My model of church is not as a museum. This is not the place that you come to see what the church used to do 2,000 years ago, what the church used to do 1,000 years ago, what a church used to do in its heyday in the 1950s or 60s, not even what the church used to do last week. It's an opportunity for us to say, where is God today in us? And the dance goes on. So I want to tease out some of your great questions from the Burning Questions submission that have to do with the Bible so that we can understand it together. One of the things that you need to know about my dance is probably best framed up in the words of the late Bishop William Dew. My dad served under him as a district superintendent. And what Bill wanted folks to know is he didn't take the Bible literally, but he takes it very seriously. I'm much the same. I don't approach Scripture as the inherited, inerrant Word of God without error. I don't take it as literally true, imagining the world is somehow only 6,000 years old. But I take it very seriously. I'll tell you this, I love the Bible more than I love Star Wars. And let me tell you why that matters. Some of you in this room are going, I've heard of Star Wars, I'm aware of its cultural phenomenon, it's about 45 years old, same as Andy. You don't know, I, I've seen each of those three original films more than 100 times a piece. I've read most of the books. I bear some of the tattoos. I've watched the cartoons and the Disney Plus shows. I love me some Star Wars. 
It is a world that I've not just heard about or seen once or think I know the major beats of. It is something that I have saturated the pop culture side of me with. So when I say I love Scripture more than I love Star Wars, my point is this. The dance goes on with me in my relationship with the Bible in a way that is deep and repetitive. It is a part of my daily routine. But I don't lean into it in such a way as to use it as a weapon, or is the finite word, I long to know how God is speaking today. So let's talk about interpretation and intent. Let's talk about the Bible. Because one of the first questions that came up was, are the stories in the Bible actual historical events, or are they made up to make a point? And my answer was, yes. <laughs> I've always been a snot. I love either or questions, because usually I've got the space for the mystery, and I love living in the middle. And living in the middle in today's day and age is to say, yes, it reflects an important part of a history of a people's relationship with God. There is no denying that scriptures do their best to capture the beautiful history of first the Israelite people's relationship with God. To know their history and their foundation and their establishment as an identity and the shifting ways that their relationship with God has evolved over time. God started out as divine moved into a role of kingship or, uh, or priestly leadership in their lives. And then God moves in a more prophetic way, a, a, a spoken voice in their midst until you get to the point of Jesus where he begins to treat us as family and friend. There is a clear history there, and there are benchmarks that we can make about understanding it as history, but there are also great stories in there. Morality tales that are intended to help us know who we are, and in the same way that Jesus uses metaphors and parables to help the people of God understand, so too do I believe that about many sections of Scripture. They are intended to teach us truths without requiring us to lean on the idea that this is a news reporting and accurate in how it happened. One turn of phrase for the Bible is, is it, is it God's best understanding of these stories? Absolutely. I believe that Scripture is inspired insofar as it comes from well-meaning, faithful people doing their best to understand God in their story and in that moment with such a love and respect that they want to share that experience of the divine. And as their experiences of God have shifted, so too do their stories. But one of the things we have to know about Scripture is it doesn't tell the pretty picture of who God is. One of my writers of influence in my notes is Text of Terror by Dr. Phyllis Tribble. What Dr. Tribble argues is, is that one of the things that we don't often preach about, what our kids certainly aren't hearing in Sunday school right now, is that some of the most painful stories in the Old Testament deal with the suffering of women, the patterns of misogyny, rape, abuse. Now, they're stories that ring true. They tell a human element, but they don't become a fundamental part of, of how we understand God in so many ways. And Dr. Tribble says maybe they should. What does it mean to have a scripture that's filled with not just God at, at, at kind of Disneyland finest, but in a way that is challenging to the human experience? It allows you a little bit of a lifeline to hang on to, as Christine talked about it this morning. That when you're not at your finest, you're not at your best, he won't give up on you. There's a firm foundation there. God is present in the difficult times and in the best of times. 
A more nuanced question about God when it comes to Scripture came up from somebody's hand. It says, why does the Old Testament God seem so different from the New Testament God? One of the ways to understand that is to say our understanding of God has shifted. The passage that Andy read about Isaiah said God's thoughts are above our thoughts, God's ways are above our ways. Maybe we just haven't had the fullness of the story. So it is the same God from text to text, just experienced through a different human lens. I think that's a faithful way to understand it, sure, but it is not the only way Last week when he talked about theology, I talked about a nuanced God who is able to change. God who is a part of the process of the human experience, not absent from it. I don't believe in a God who's done all of his homework and all of his work and just let us be. I believe in a God who is present in this moment. That's why I pray each time I preach. May your spirit be with us so the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart in this moment might be a successful, valuable, faithful offering to you. I believe in a God who is present here and now. And if God is present in here and now, God is a part of the process of the human experience. God celebrates blessings and baptisms. But God grieves when human beings screw it up because there's a conflict between some of God's children and some more of God's children. So the earthquake in Taiwan, the super typhoon that's coming into Japan, suffering in the world around us, the continued war in the Ukraine. I think a God who changes and who's a part of the human experience grieves for the brokenness of our world. I believe in the possibility of divine change. So as God's desire to be in full relationship with humanity evolves over time from creator to king and priest to prophet and then to father with the incarnate son, we become a part of God's journey of reaching mankind for the sake of building the kingdom of God and redeeming every one of us in this room, and especially me. You're a part of God's work in my redemption story because we are the body of Christ. Somebody asked, is science and Scripture compatible? Ooh, what a good one. I know there are people in this church who are in scientific fields who do big brain stuff that I admire. And you need to hear your pastor say, my answer to that question is absolutely. Absolutely. Not because I somehow disregard or turn my back on one element or the other. I'm not a fetalist. And what that means is I don't believe that faith is something that exists outside of the ability of human understanding. I believe faith at our best is questioned and it grows and it develops by asking good questions of it. Why do I believe that? Because I believe in a God that is big enough to handle that. And as we have grown in our understanding of how the world and the universe works, as we look at those powerful images from the Webb telescope, as we consider what our, our archeological record will tell us, as we learn deeper lessons, for me it is a chance to know God better. Because I believe it is a continued part of God trying to be real and relevant in my story. Because one of the problems we have when it comes to science and Scripture is issues of creationism, issues of the flood, the historical accuracy of Scripture, and then a big question that somebody asked, what is God's physical form? 
And the problem is, is if your only answer to that question as an individual or a church is God looks like this guy, you're going to come up short. It's a beautiful picture. And like good art, it says some powerful things about who we are and the kind of limp-wristed apathy of Adam and the, the stern reach of God. But if your only framework for God is a person who is slightly older than the oldest human, maler than the malest male, taller than Shaquille O'Neal, and white as white can be, then you are missing out on a nuanced God who is reaching into and making a difference in disenfranchised and minority communities around you in this valley and certainly around the world. Black liberation theologists, Latinx theologists, feminist theologists say this is an incomplete picture of God. And you want to know why we know that? Because your Bible says so. Because the first chapter in Genesis talks about male and female being created in the plural image of God. And if we all bear the image of God, this might work for some folks, but it won't work for everybody. I don't think God has a physical form. I feel God has a presence. I feel like God is with me. I feel like God is in me. I feel like God can work through me, but that not, is not something that is set at a distance because God is doing that from some remote place where an old white God sits on a throne and makes that happen. Somebody asked, what do you make of the balance between theological determinism and evolution? You thought the frog's question was hard. I told you, there were some fingers in this church. I love that. Theological determinism, we talked a little bit about last week. It says God causes everything to happen because God has foreknowledge of all things. So if it happened, it's because God sat down with a pencil on a piece of paper and wrote down everything that was going to happen today, including the clap that Andy just did. God anticipates that activity, and God has planned for it. And the reason I think these two ideas were paired together is, is if that's the case, then one of the ways you answer the question of science and Scripture is to say... God planned for evolution to happen. And that the evolutionary shifts that we see in science and in nature are a part of the determinism of God. That's a big brain topic. And I just want to take my foot off the throttle and say that's not my affirmation. Because I don't believe in a deterministic God who has written down the whole course of my life. I believe in a God who continues to experience and intervene in Andy's story and in the stories that I share with you and in the ways that I have seen you come alive in worship and in prayer. God is moving and real and relevant with us, not as some statistician who's written down everything as it is or should be. Because my fear is, is that this mentality about trying to apologize away struggles between science and religion are a way of the Christian church saying God would prefer us ignorant. God doesn't want you to think. God wants you to believe, and so there must be a difference. That is not where I come from. That's not how I'm wired. Our ability to be creative, to explore, to ask good, nuanced questions, to create music, to make art, are all rooted 
in a part of our nature as a part of being God's creation, God's creatures imbued with the image of God. Finally, a pair of questions in this section. One was about dinosaurs. What do we make of that? And the other, someone about four rows back will recognize what frogs were a part of the plague. So I want to answer your question first, Mr. Adling. <laughs> I had to Google this, and there's apparently only one species of frogs that existed in Egypt at that time, so I'm going with that one. Go look it up for more. <laughs> this question of faith and science when it comes to something like dinosaurs is we have to appreciate that the founders of America didn't even know that there was a fossil record of dinosaurs. Let me say that another way. George Washington didn't know about Tyrannosaurus rex. It is in the short history of our common time together that we have had these magnificent advances in science. And so one of the questions that people speculate on is why doesn't God say more about dinosaurs in Scripture? If that's a part of it. And there are certain Christian apologetics out there in the world who say, well, no, those bones exist because God put them there or the devil put them there to challenge your experience of the truth of God. I deny that perspective entirely. Rather, I think it's a part of our expanding understanding of the greatness and glory of God. And I want to talk about three quick words as an approach to Scripture. There's a meta word, a fourth one that's not on the screen, that's textual. One way to read the Bible is this is what the text says, so it has to be true. My experience of reading Scripture and making it a part of my daily discipline and the times where I've studied in its entirety, the text itself has conflicts back and forth. And we can unpack that some other time if you want. So when we want to learn about what the text says and how it might speak to us in a real and relevant way, there are a couple of words to know. One is context. What's the historical context? What's the philosophical context? What's the cultural context that this particular passage comes from? And there are some people who say, well, if you're paying attention to the context, the Psalms mention Leviathan, Isaiah talks about that, Revelation mentions dragons, surely there's a place for dinosaurs in our scripture. For me, that's a reach. There's another way of understanding scripture, that there are things that we know that are atextual, that are not in the text, but we know them to be true. Dinosaurs are not in your Bible in the way that we experience them directly, but we have this way of experiencing them. And I don't think that atextual examples then trounce on my experience of Christ and the work of God. And then there are subtextual things, things that bubble under the surface, not just about the context, but a part of the, the story and truth that is a part of God's work and relevance for us in this day and age. There are things that we tease out from the story that we begin to hold to be true, not because of the context of the time that they were written, but because of what is implied to us. Specific example, how many wise men came to visit Jesus? Right? Camille has 80 Koresh sets, and almost all of them have three wise men in them. Why are there three? We don't know. Why do we think that? Because there are three gifts named, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And if there's three gifts, surely there's three wise men, each carrying one of their own. It's a subtextual clue that we've come to hold as truth. So how do we deal with these struggles in Scripture? Me, it's a work of prayer. It's a work of study. It's a work of listening to the wisdom of others and realizing that I don't have all the answers. And if I'm wrong, that will be okay. And oh, by the way, you don't have to be wrong for me to be right. And 
I don't have to be wrong for you to be right. We get so caught up in our convictions and our differences and that which divides us that that really hands off to the next section. Because there are a couple of great questions about how the Bible can relate to culture, particularly in America. The first thing I want you to know is I don't think the church was ever meant to be an institution. Now, I want you to keep coming back Sundays at 1030. We do good work here together. This is a part of building the kingdom of God in common. But when Jesus looks at Peter and says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church, it is an experiential sense by which it is a confession and an idea that the church is meant to be the incarnate body of Christ. We are a part of the present building of the kingdom. We are a part of the lived story of God's work here on this corner, yes, here in this community, yes, but with our brothers and sisters around the world. We weren't meant to just be a place, and that's a story we teach to our kids. The church is not a meeting place. The church is not a steeple. The church is us, we the people. I still think the church has potential Tremendous potential for influence and change. That if we are the lived body of Christ, we have something to say to the world around us about how this world of ours works, how it is wired, what its moral center should be. Now, I hold that intention with the question that was actually asked about what then would you say about Christian nationalism? Christian nationalism is Christian tribalism run amok. Tribalism is where we say, these are the things I believe, and those are the things that Tim believes, and I'm going to compare what I believe with what Tim believes, and if it's not the same list, then you have nothing to do with me. I don't think that's how the gospel works. If you take Scripture seriously, that's not even how the disciples worked. They argued, they envied, they boasted, they complained. The first 12 people that Jesus chose as a model of the church included the person who was going to betray him. The church is always going to have these struggles, but when we begin to get a pattern of tribalism and says, what mine is mine and my authority is my own, and you are the enemy if you disagree, is a dangerous precedent, and Christian nationalism is that coupled with the power of governance. It's a way of saying, in a false sense, that this nation is a Christian nation, always has, should have Christian ideals defining its laws, and that as a part of that is a subtext layer that makes no space for the immigrant or the stranger in their midst. It's a dangerous precedent. And it is not Christ-like. It is not the church. If we're called to be the body of Christ, Gustavo Gutierrez says we are to be incarnate of Christ. And Christ's story in the Gospels is about him being present with the poor, with the hungry, with those in need of healing. If we are Christ's body in this day and age, that is where our work is. We call it social justice, but it's a pattern of empathy, of care, of being driven to find the needs of those around us. Now, if you hold these two in tension in light of what's been going on this last week, here's everything you need to know about Martha's Vineyard from me. I condemn the practice of those brothers and sisters of human creation being gathered up under false pretenses and shipped off to Massachusetts to make a political point. 
Human beings aren't pawns in some sort of political chess game. But what I did appreciate about what I saw is that in Martha's Vineyard, the church done showed up. Because instead of the scorn that was anticipated from the choice of shipping those folks here under this pattern of Christian nationalism in America first and has no place for the immigrant or the asylum seeker in our midst, we got to protect our borders and protect us first. They thought, well, we're going to ship them there and they're going to show the world exactly what we mean. Instead, they fed them. They found them resources. They dismissed their Spanish 4 AP class to go so that these people and their children had somebody who could talk to them and to make them feel at home. The body of Christ is about making God real and relevant in the lived experience today. I want to close with this. I am keenly aware that the Bible has within it its own self-imagery about it being a weapon. When Paul talks about the armor of God, he says the word of God is a sword of truth. Jesus himself says, I have come as the incarnate word of God and I will split hearts, including yours, mom. I'm keenly aware of that idea. But I hope that as the body of Christ, that becomes something that we can heal past, confess a brokenness in our past about, and begin to live in a more faithful way. Because I follow one who was present with, a one who would never justify cruelty on the backs of scriptural affirmation, one who, when he looked at disparity in his own midst that seemed to be reinforced by the claims of scripture about things like Sabbath or people's sin life, instead offered grace and forgiveness. So if I'm going to take the Bible seriously, it's got a whole lot to say about how Andy lives his life and how we're meant to be the church together. Would you join me in a moment of prayer?